0: the legacy of John Williams. Mm -hmm. Celebrating the music and the art of maestro John Williams.
1: Hello everyone, I am Maurizio Cascato, editor of The Legacy of John Williams, and welcome to a new episode of The Legacy of John Williams podcast. Here with me, my friend and collaborator, head contributor of The Legacy of John Williams, Tim Burden. Hello, Tim.
0: Maurizio, how are you? Good to be here.
1: All good, thank you. So happy to see you again. So today we are here for a new installment of the Legacy Conversation series, and we have a very special guest. He is one of the most frequently performed American orchestral composers of his generation, and his works have received over 600 public performances by more than 200 orchestras and tens of thousands of broadcasts by classical radio stations around the world. His work for actors and orchestra, Ellis Island, The Dream of America, has become one of the most performed American orchestral works of the last 15 years, with over 250 performances by more than 100 orchestras since its premiere in 2002. He has received commissions from several of the most prestigious American institutions and ensembles, including the Kennedy Center for the National Symphony Orchestra, the Boston Symphony Orchestra for the Boston Pops, the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra for the Cincinnati Pops, the Pacific Symphony Orchestra, and the United States Marine Band, aka the president's Own which in 2021 commissioned and premiered a fanfare for the inauguration of President Joe Biden. In addition to his concert work, he has also worked as an orchestrator for top Hollywood composers, including James Newton Howard, Thomas Newman, Michael Giacchino, and the late James Horner. So it's a great honor for us to introduce to the Legacy of John Williams podcast composer and conductor Peter Boyer. Hi Peter, so nice to have you here on the Legacy of John Williams podcast.
0: Welcome,
2: Hello, Maurizio and hello, Tim. It's nice that we finally can speak together after a long time of talking about it. It's great to uh, see you on my Zoom screen and to make this connection. Absolutely.
1: Uh, it's great to have you here on the show, finally. Uh, as some of our followers perhaps know, you were among the very first people I talked to back in the very early days of the website. And <laughs> the old days, yes. And you were truly kind to accept my invitation for an interview that was published as a written article on the legacy of John Williams. The link is in the description for anyone who wants to check it out. And in that interview, you talked about your musical background, your love for John Williams' music, and your major works up until then. Anyhow, uh, we were eager to have you on the podcast as well, to discuss more with you about your music and having more of your perspective as a composer, because the title of this website and and of the show as well is The Legacy of John Williams, and his music certainly continues to be a touchstone for many contemporary orchestral composers writing music, either for film or the concert hall, including yourself, and keeping that great tradition alive and into the future. We recently had another great American composer on the show, Eric Whittaker, and we plan to have more composers in upcoming episodes, but today we're glad to have you here, Peter. So, let's pick up from where we left almost four years ago now, <laughs> because in the meantime, a lot happened, uh, and last year you released a new album called Balance of Power and Other Orchestral Works, Presented in the American Classics series on the Nexus label, where you collected some of your more recent works for orchestra, including a major new symphonic work, Balance of Power, plus other new works. The album was recorded in London with the London Symphony Orchestra, another nice John Williams connection there, and became one of the most successful contemporary classical releases of 2022. So, Peter, Let's start from here and get us through this major new project that you did last year.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you, Maurizio. And, and yes, uh, a great deal has transpired uh, since we spoke for the written uh, interview and not least, of course, a global pandemic, which uh, made all of our lives considerably more challenging and more difficult in many ways. Um, and in mm-hmm. fact, this album that you speak of, which uh, is, you know, Balance of Power and other works, it is my fourth album overall um, and my third in the Noxus American Classic Series and my second album with the London Symphony Orchestra. Um, and the way that my career has unfolded in terms of these recordings, e- each of these four recordings has been a very major endeavor as you might gather. Um, and. Two of them have been with the LSO and one with the LPO, the London Philharmonic Orchestra, and one with the Philharmonia Orchestra. So each of them has represented an enormous effort over multiple years. And so for this recording um, with the LSO, the plan had been, um, I thought, well my very first recording had been with the LSO at Abbey Road in the early 2001. I had made that recording in early 2001. I was quite young and it was a a very significant moment in my career long in the planning and so I thought well uh, uh before the pandemic I thought 2021 will do a nice round 20 years um, and go yes. back with the LSO and perhaps go back to Abbey Road I thought that would have a very nice sort of continuity to it and that is the plan that I began to make and of course the pandemic uh, intervened and uh had a a chaotic effect on so many lives. So clearly it it was not gonna happen um, on the 20 year mark. It turned out to be in fact 21 years. And because of the pandemic and because of the lingering restrictions in terms of size, uh, it was not possible to record this album at Abbey Road. I needed a very large orchestra. I needed a 90 piece orchestra to do some of these pieces there were still restrictions in place in terms of size on abbey road so i ended up uh, doing this recording with the lso at Henry Wood hall which of course i had heard of for so many years so many wonderful recordings there but i'd never been inside i'd never done a recording there um, and it's different from abbey road but also really terrific in its own way um, and also i felt very fortunate that uh, after a long time in the planning and hoping I was able to work with Simon Rhodes um, as my producer and and main engineer, uh, who of course is uh, well known to your listeners and to so many people in both the film and classical industries. So I felt very privileged to be able to get Simon Rhodes um, in a little window of opportunity. So it was a very, very exciting project and it was a great deal of work. I suppose that's an understatement. It was about something like a year and a half of, of solid work, including creating new versions of three pieces um, that had existed for concert band, which is so, if you had asked me, you know, seven or eight years ago, uh, do you expect to have concert band works in your catalog? I would have said, well, no, because I'm an orchestral composer (laughs) primarily. But um, that was an unexpected uh, sort of uh, detour, and it's turned into a very good thing. So Mm -hmm. I had to create new versions of Fanfare for Tomorrow, the piece from President Biden's inauguration, as you mentioned, which was written uh, quite quickly um, for the United States Marine Band for that inauguration in early 2021. I created a new orchestral version, um, and the LSO recorded that, and also a new version for orchestra of this piece, Fanfare Hymn and Finale. Which I had written for the United States Marine Band, and um, which they will actually be recording soon. So we'll have a, a second recording, and both of those versions will wow. be available, which is which is uh, very cool. Uh, also, a piece called Curtain Razor, which was the first concert band commission um, from 2017, and uh, I worked on a version of that. So so during the pandemic and the lockdowns and the cancellations of so many performances, and this great sense of uncertainty that we all had of how long will this, will this go? I mean, how long will this lockdown be? I think it's probably safe to say it turned out to be far longer than many of us anticipated when it began. Um, but I thought, well, at some point this will end, pandemics always end, and so I'm going to sit here and I'm gonna work in my studio uh, on these recordings. And I spent some months creating new orchestral versions of uh, those pieces that I mentioned. And of course, Balance of Power, the piece from which the album takes its title is by far the biggest piece on the recording Um, it's nearly 19 minutes three movements and uh, was commissioned by the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in Washington for the National Symphony Orchestra and such an unusual um, genesis for that commission because it was a piece to celebrate the 95th birthday of Henry Kissinger the former United States Secretary of State um, with whom I met both before composing the piece and after making the recording to play the recording for him, a kind of surreal couple of stories in and of themselves. <laughs> so that, that became the, the largest piece on the recording. Um, and then there are others as well that maybe we, we can talk about a bit later. But so it turned out to be a full one hour of music. Um, I felt a great joy to be able to do this recording again with the LSO. And of course, you know, tying in so naturally with the, the subject matter of your podcast and all of the things that you deal with with John Williams you know how can one not think about John Williams and this incredible legacy of his with the LSO yeah Uh, yeah. you know this is something with which I grew up as did so many of us and even you know I was too young at the time when I was a kid to know that I was listening to the LSO and to know you know that someday I would grow up and get the chance to to make recordings with them but you know obviously this is this kind of sense of making a connection to a very important musical and cultural legacy is something that is is deeply meaningful to me. Uh, And of course, just the thrill, the utter thrill of being able to stand in front of the London Symphony Orchestra for two days and to conduct them and to make a recording, knowing that you've got some of the finest musicians on the planet and one of the finest producers in the world, you know, it's just like driving the greatest luxury sports car. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, totally. uh, yes, you know, and so that, that's a great that's a great analogy, actually. Yes, it really is. <laughs> and I have to say, I'm not, you know, I don't actually drive a Ferrari or a Maserati, um, so uh, I, I don't have <laughs> that that direct experience. But but musically speaking, you know, it's just really thrilling to to do this, and it's both a tremendous thrill, but also it's a tremendous, as you can imagine, a, amount of work and concentration and focus that are required and so there's so much preparation going into actually doing those sessions and then as they occur i'm both trying to stay extremely focused on the tasks at hand to listen carefully and critically to make sure that i'm conducting well to make sure that we're capturing performances you know in this very quick high pressure situation as well as possible so there's all of this and a professional work going on, and yet I'm also trying to utterly enjoy the moment, um, and and that's that's a really kind of challenging thing to do because it, it requires so much focus to make sure that that one is at one's best, et cetera. But also, you know, how does one not enjoy the moment? Um, and so I'm glad that it was uh, captured, you know, with all of these mics and all of these tracks, and also. Captured multicam in terms of the videos um, some of which you've probably seen to be able to do these promo videos so that this very very special time That was uh, so long in the planning and so much work is really fully captured and can be shared with the public But also for me can be a kind of a personal remembrance uh, of this very important moment so I'm thrilled with how well the recording turned out um, and also the the reception uh, to the recording it's had so many broadcasts um, around the United States and around the world, so much streaming. Um, and now we live in an era in which uh, we can actually know with great certainty the precise number of streams in a certain <laughs> quarter. You know so we know that, for example, uh, you know Elegy, which turned out, I would say to be kind of the surprise hit of the album. I, I didn't expect that at all. Um Elegy, this three and a half minute piece that was adapted from a couple of cues that I wrote for a play for incidental music and then I I adapted it for English horn and harp and string orchestra and lo and behold oh thank you thank you um yeah um, yeah it is is.
1: no I mean it's it's wonderful because it's really something very heartfelt I think
2: indeed and to have Christine Pendrel who who just retired as as the English hornist of the LSO shortly after this um and Bryn Lewis on harp and the strings of the LSO uh recorded toward the end of the sessions to you know I wrote that I adapted it specifically for those sessions and so knowing I would have these players I had them sort of mentally in mind of okay this is the sound that it will be but I honestly didn't expect that kind of reaction and so again it's a kind of um, reflection of the times in which we live and how things have changed that now streaming and the response of streaming services is so utterly crucial which wasn't the case obviously when I did my first recording so Apple Music um, to my surprise and delight they really got behind the recording in a very serious way, um, which has led to you know a, a lot of the increased exposure for the album. But somehow they lit upon Elegy as the track that they promoted the most and playlisted the most. And that one track alone has had nearly a quarter of a million streams on Apple Music since it was released wow. last summer. Really surprising to me. Um, so something about that track has resonated with people, and that's very gratifying to me. And also Radiance, the string orchestra piece, um, uh you know which turned out to be an over nine minute piece that was the only piece on the album that did not originate from a commission work um, but purely out of a a personal desire to write something and frankly to have one more piece uh, on this recording that would both allow me to have a full album and also perhaps be a contrast to so much of this this brassy fanfare kind of music that i I, i'm often asked to do and so Mm -hmm. i wrote radiance not knowing anything not knowing how long it would be i just knew strings i'd have the strings of the lso i didn't know if it would be a four minute piece or a five minute piece or a six minute piece turned out to be nine and a half minutes um and uh you know didn't know what form it would take it was just essentially for me uh sitting here in my studio in the lockdowns of the pandemic wondering when life is going to get better and writing this piece that I just wanted to somehow reflect some personal feeling of of beauty and joy and, and, and optimism and knowing I'd have the LSO strings and to then get to do that, to record that and have it played so beautifully and then have audiences find it and respond to it when the piece literally has not even been performed publicly yet because it was done mm-hmm. for the recording. So that was a very unusual um, aspect of the recording that I thought was a very nice contrast to these bigger, more public, more ebullient kind of pieces. So um, that's a long answer to your question, but it was it was a great thrill. (laughs) It was a huge, huge effort, Maurizio, Uh, a huge effort. But I I am very, very pleased with how it all turned out. We all are, Peter. (laughs) So
1: (laughs) let's take a small musical break now and listen to an excerpt of Elegy for English horn, harp and strings, music by Peter Boyer, performed by the London Symphony Orchestra. So Peter, let's go a bit deeper into Balance of Power, because uh, besides being the largest and more ambitious piece on the album, uh, it also offers a nice opportunity to talk about the storytelling aspect and the narrative quality of your own music. I mean, this is not a descriptive piece like a tone poem or anything like that, but some of the gestures that you use might Make think of a certain style of film music. Yes. So we are having here a piece on a major political figure of the 20th century. And I am interested in hearing from you how did you envision the piece and how was the writing process overall?
2: Yes, well, I must say um, I never, never would have imagined that I would write a piece focusing on Henry Kissinger. Um, if you had <laughs> asked me a few years ago, I, I would have thought that was a highly, highly unlikely uh, situation to occur. You know, it's interesting that as you know, Maurizio and Tim, I, I wrote a piece a number of years ago uh, for the Boston Pops on the Kennedy Brothers. Um, and so that piece was, I will say, a much more natural uh, piece for me to compose. And in terms of you know, just the, the idea of in some way dealing with political figures in music, well, it's a highly fraught, complicated scenario to begin with. But in the case of the Kennedy Brothers, um, you know, I, I was asked to do this piece um, by Keith Lockhart uh, for the Boston Pops, and it was asked to deal with the legacy of, of John F. Kennedy and Robert Kennedy and Ted Kennedy to use their words. Now, that's very important distinction, which Balance of Power does not have. It's purely orchestral. So uh, in a way, the Kennedy Brothers piece, uh, and I, I mention it because it's, it's you know, it's the predecessor piece in terms of dealing with political figures. Mm-hmm. That was a much yes. easier work to compose. I'm not saying it was easy, but it was much more clear What i would do and i so since you asked this question the origin or the genesis of balance of power starts with an email um, and the email came to me in the fall of 2018 from a woman whose name i had heard but i had never spoken with her prior to that point a woman named bonnie McElveen hunter who is uh, i think one of the most important patrons or sponsors of new orchestral music in the united states and she uh, got in touch with me and the subject line of the email that started this whole project was quite memorable it was quote symphonic work dash dr henry kissinger unquote um so you know this is an email that gets one's attention uh and and then i read the email and and it said that that she was interested in in me writing this work uh to celebrate henry kissinger's 95th birthday which had already passed by that point and uh that the plan or hope was that it was going to be performed by the National Symphony at the Kennedy Center. And I have to say, I had mixed feelings. I've been very clear about that. You know, Henry Kissinger is a highly controversial figure, um, and my own political sensibilities, which I, I never really talk about in mean, my music, but they, they tend toward the more liberal side. And so knowing that, you know, this was the Secretary of State of a, a rather shall we say problematic administration um, you know it, it did not make me sort of jump and say ah here's a piece that I that I know what to do so <laughs> I actually had to, I had to be convinced to take this commission um, and Bonnie yes. McElveen Hunter who is a former United States ambassador to Finland and who is a, a very active philanthropist um, particularly in the new music scene the orchestra world in the United States she's a, she's a very persuasive very unique very charming woman and uh, essentially, she she talked me into it and, <laughs> and she said, well, you, you must come to New York and meet with Henry. You know, so how many composers are invited to go have lunch with Henry Kissinger? It's a very unusual situation. <laughs> uh, so I said, well, OK, I, I, I have to do this. Um, and so a lunch took place with uh, Bonnie McElveen Hunter, Dr. Kissinger, his wife, uh, Nancy Kissinger, and uh, myself and Deborah Rutter, the president of the Kennedy Center. It was a kind of surreal luncheon. And at that point, I had simply just started to read some things. It's a, it's a long answer to your question. I'll try to make it a little shorter, but it involved so much research to try to figure out what to do, um, because I have to know what I'm going to do. I can't just sit there and start composing thematic material if there isn't some sort of plan in a case of a piece mm-hmm. like that. And I knew that it was not going to be a piece with spoken word and orchestra. I have to say, uh, unlike the Kennedy brothers, where there are so many wonderful excerpts from speeches, there's so much soaring rhetoric that kind of cries out to have an orchestra behind it. One does not read Henry Kissinger's writing and hear French horns you know, welling up in one's head. Um, it's just a very different kind of thing. So I realized that I had to find a way into this commission. And when I had this lunch, I asked Dr. Kissinger, if he had any specific requests for this piece. I thought this, maybe this will help me understand what it is that I have to do. And he had only two specific requests and I'm tempted to imitate his famous low voice, but I won't, I'll just just do it in my own voice. And so his first request was, please don't make it too abstract so I can understand it. That's a direct quote. Okay, so that was not gonna be a problem because that's more or less not the kind of music I write. But the second one was, quote, could it be a humorous symphony unquote. So this is a direct request from a man who was very regarded for his wit um, during his heyday. And so that immediately lodged itself in my mind as something that I would need to do. And that became the second movement. So anyway, as I read and read and read about Kissinger, I I read, I'm not exaggerating, I read about 3000 pages either by or about Henry Kissinger over the course of four or five months. Um, and that didn't even include his memoirs, because his three volumes of memoirs are probably about 5,000 pages alone. Um, I did buy them, um, and you know it's, it's like a one-foot stack on the shelf. I, just, I scanned them, and I said, I can't possibly read all of this before I write. But I read, I read um, biographies by um, Neil Ferguson uh, and by Walter Isaacson and quite a bit of other material. And I hit upon then this phrase, balance of power. Um, And it's interesting that I started writing this piece at the very beginning of 2019 and I wrote it throughout most of 2019. So it was actually before the events that led to, you know, January 6, 2021. And the phrase balance of power ended up being on many, many people's lips after I wrote this piece. Um, And of course, it had nothing to do with the piece itself. But it's interesting that phrase, that balance of power is a phrase that is so important in in the writings of Kissinger. And the main book of his that I read was a book called Diplomacy, the 900 plus page book. Very fascinating, very hard reading, but very interesting. And this phrase balance of power, I realized was on almost every page. So in the end, what I decided to do was I decided to create a piece that would have three movements um, that would fit within the general parameters of this commission. And the first movement is called A Sense of History. And the second movement is called A Sense of Humor, subtitled Scherzo Politico. And the third movement is called A Sense of Direction. If one reads Kissinger's writings, uh, one becomes aware of power struggles throughout history. And that became the basis of the narrative, as you say, that became what what the first movement is really all about. And knowing that I'd have the resources of a large orchestra to use that. So there's musically depiction of both a kind of historical, if you will, epic uh, sort of sound, but also of drama, of struggle, of strife, and all of that, I tried to capture, um, you know, and to do that in a in a, an eight-minute movement, something like that. So that's the, the kind of darkness and drama of the piece. And then the second movement, this this uh, sense of humor or scherzo politico, that was just my response to the request. Henry Kissinger has asked me for a quote-unquote humorous symphony, so let me see what I can do. And I wrote this uh, off-kilter scherzo. But what turned out to be perhaps the most memorable aspect of the piece, at least according to what people have said to me, um, is I decided that I needed to pay homage to this famous growly low voice. And so I wrote a duet for contrabassoon and bass clarinet, um, which is the only such duet I'm aware of. And, it, <laughs> uh, and, and they, they end up having sort of musical negotiations with each other and tossing blues, blues scales back and forth at each other in the lowest registers. And it turned out to be quite the hit of the piece. Um, and, and Henry Kissinger loved it. <laughs> <laughs> So that was my way of dealing with his request. And then I knew that I needed to end the piece in an optimistic manner. And so I found this phrase in his writings, a sense of direction. And since I was using the sense, right, sense of history, sense of humor, sense of direction, it seemed like a kind of um, a launching off point for me to use the orchestra in a more optimistic way, something that I enjoy doing, and to try to evoke a sense of something driving America into a brighter future Um, and there's a certain leap of faith from reading Henry Kissinger's writings to getting to that point but I felt that it was appropriate and also because it was supposed to be you know a a celebratory piece so I felt like I had to cover a great deal of terrain narratively dramatically speaking um, and it ended up being uh, it was commissioned to be uh, roughly a 15minute piece and it turned out to be on 18 and a half minutes something like that so a lot a lot of ground was covered and it was extremely challenging. There was about nine months total of writing between of working I should say between all of the research and then all of the writing and and so hopefully uh, it did indeed achieve these goals that I, that I set out to achieve
0: then to to maybe perhaps give a, a movement uh, as a kind of example of how it's coming along or were you grateful just to be able to premiere the whole piece yes just out of it, 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 interest?
2: no there was there was uh, no um, hearing anything ahead of time uh, so it was all, you know, I, I was, um, faith was put in me that I would deliver what was asked for. And I did do, as part of my normal process, I do pretty elaborate demos. So there was quite an elaborate demo before the piece was actually premiered. But um, yeah, that, that was not heard either by Henry Kissinger or by Bonnie McElvine Hunter ahead of time, even though it was available to be heard. So really, the first time that it was heard was. In the premiere at the Kennedy Center, which of course was delayed because of the pandemic, um, it was it was to have been in May 2021, and it was delayed until September 2021. Uh, and and I you know a very is a very interesting situation in that there was a quite a a glittery gathering of Washington people for a very special dinner at the Kennedy Center beforehand. Um, really qu- quite a crowd, including a couple former United States secretaries. Um, and very interesting um, group of people. And I was asked to speak at that. And because of COVID, Henry Kissinger was not able to be there. But as a sort of surprise at the end of the dinner, um, this big television was wheeled out and then a message uh, was played from Henry Kissinger, recorded in his home, in which he then thanked Bonnie McElveen Hunter. He thanked me um, profusely. It was very surreal. <laughs> it was a kind of sur- <laughs> surreal moment. Um, and then that that preceded um, this wonderful performance with Thomas Wilkins conducting the National Symphony Orchestra at full strength. And they had just come back from the pandemic. I mean, it was it was only I think the second concert um, that was done at the Kennedy Center with a full audience without social distancing etc so there was a kind of um, a, a special of a, relief a, yes, yes relie- relief and 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 a, an atmosphere of excitement that it was indeed a full house it was a full house um, yes and and I I have to say I mean just in terms of those very very special composer moments that that one gets now and then if one is fortunate, um, you know, when the piece was was over, had a tremendous ovation. And, and Thomas Wilkins invited me to the stage. And I went up and and, and then stood and he asked me to just stand on the podium. And, and, and I stood there in the concert hall at the Kennedy Center and I watched the full house stand. Um, and that is something that Cannot but, uh, be described. <laughs> yeah, it just doesn't happen every day. It doesn't you know. <laughs> happen every day. It will probably never happen again. But um, but it was it was an ex- <laughs> it was an extraordinary moment because at that point it had been nearly three years um, since I had gotten the first email. It had been nearly three years and the delays, etc. And then to just to stand there and to and to see whatever number of people that is two thousand twenty one hundred people stand for a prolonged standing ovation Um, I mean maybe they were just standing because they were happy to be you know all in a big hall together again but uh, I'll I'll take it as you know a sort of stamp of approval of the piece so it was (laughs) it was very very exciting very very exciting and then it really wasn't um, terribly long after that I was standing in front of the LSO at Henry Wood Hall and using that same set of parts that had been used in Washington and then making a recording so um, that also I, I feel very fortunate that that was able to happen pretty quickly afterward. Getting closer to
1: the subject of this podcast, there is a connection to John Williams here because, as we know, he wrote a lot of music for films with presidents and presidential subjects. Yes. (laughs) Of course, Jeff Kaye by Oliver Stone and Lincoln by Steven Spielberg, but also some of the music for... John Quincy Adams in Amistad, and Nixon as well.
0: Kissinger, a big part of that, yeah. yeah. Um,
1: I don't think there is a theme for Kissinger in that score. (laughs) I don't think so, no. uh, I might need to check, actually. But what I'd love to ask you, Peter, is if some of that specific repertoire by John Williams was somehow a reference of sorts when you set to write a piece like this or even your piece from a few years ago based on the Kennedy brothers' The Dream Lives On.
2: Well, certainly, I mean, in the broadest sense, it's very much a part of my musical background, my my musical vocabulary um, mm-hmm. at any point, what, you know, whatever whatever I may be writing. I would say, specifically to your question, much more so in writing the piece about the Kennedy brothers and less so in Balance of Power, but yet mm-hmm. it's, still, it's still absolutely part of, you know, the overall vocabulary. As you know, and as we talked about when we did... The interview for your website a number of years ago that the the three composers to whom you know my music is sometimes compared and who I always cite as the sort of biggest influences are Aaron Copeland and Leonard Bernstein and John Williams who of course are all uh, related to each other uh, in addition to being related to many other composers who followed them and you know whenever I say such a thing of course it's a It's a double-edged sword. It's a very, in a way, a kind of dangerous thing to say. And I'm always careful to say that, you know, I I don't say that to in any way try to put myself on any kind of a level playing field. I realize that I'm not. But um, but nonetheless, it's a very clear lineage in terms of what we might call an American sound. Um, And that's such Mm -hmm. a such a big and complicated term to try to explain. Well, I know that if one asked, you know, Copeland, for example, what is an American sound? There are examples of things that he said in interviews. And, you know, there are kind of obvious um, aspects to that, but it's very, it's very subjective, isn't it? It's very subjective of what that actually means. But, you know, to your larger point about the, the very title of, of your endeavor, The Legacy of John Williams, I mean, that's an excellent title that really is very broad and very, very encompassing you know, contemporary orchestral vocabulary would not be what it is for myself and for many other composers without this enormous body of work that John Williams has created, both for the concert hall and for, obviously for films. And of course, the, the film music repertoire is generally so much more well-known than the concert repertoire. But those of us who are interested in John Williams in a larger sense, of course, we, all, we know a great deal of the concert repertoire as well. Um, but you know certainly something like JFK I mean you mentioned JFK I mean that's one of the greatest themes that anybody has written for anything (laughs) Uh, that's just (laughs) that's an extraordinary perfect theme and it it seeps into one's consciousness and so I will tell you that when uh, you know in in 2000 fall 2009 and into early 2010 when I was writing the Kennedy Brothers piece for the Boston Pops how does one not think about that very famous theme and of course you know one doesn't want to simply imitate uh, a, a unique theme. But the overall style, what are the aspects of this writing, and how do they affect you know, melodically, harmonically, uh, in terms of orchestration, this overall sound. And so, so much of this simply, I think, seeps into one's bloodstream as a composer over many years if one has spent time listening. And we're very fortunate that many of these scores are available through the John yeah. Williams Signature Series. Um, and, you know, I think we talked a little bit and when we did the uh, interview for your website a number of years ago about how important studying those scores was for me as a young composer, trying to learn how is it that one writes for orchestra and what are the things that one can do? And the availability of those scores, which continues to this day, um, that's, that's an incredible resource to be able to, you know, purchase um, something like, let's say, the suite from JFK and to see precisely how this is done so that as as one can do with the music of Copland as one can do with the music of Bernstein and of course you know other composers as well Barber, Britton, Prokofiev, etc. The fact that these scores are available and can be studied in detail That's really what is is part of the the training of anyone who wants to be a composer. So, uh, you know, just as I think Brahms could not escape the shadow of Beethoven, (laughs) uh, I and so many of my contemporaries cannot escape the shadow of John Williams. Nor nor do we want to escape it. Um, But also he's still he's still here, which is really quite wonderful. I mean, when Brahms was writing his symphonies, Beethoven was no longer with him. Um, But John Williams, you know, happily at ninety one, is still unbelievably productive. Um, So let's be grateful for that.
0: It's incredible. And I'm glad you highlighted the JFK suite, you know, because I think those three movements are just outstanding. And the the seamless transition, you know, from the main title into the motorcade, and then we have this, you know, chance to breathe when the snares are kind of fading away. And then, of course, uh, the French horn solo that every player every player dreads <laughs> in the best possible way. Yes. <laughs> At least with the trumpet, you've got the snare drum under you, but no, the French horn, you're, you're by yourself. But it's, it's an incredible suite and I, I, I always remember that time hearing it live with the LSO themselves ah. at the Barbican in London in 1996 and uh, you know I was what was I 19 or 18 and you could hear a pin drop and it, it was something very special for an audience to hear it's it's a phenomenal suite
1: Where St. Peter, it's so crucial for the understanding of John Williams' music to have these published scores available, and specifically having them in these concertized versions where he was able to expand on certain ideas and having them presented in a more formal way. Uh, I mean, as much as we as fans would love to have all the complete scores available to study and, and perform, <laughs> um, some of these concert suites, like the one from JFK that you were mentioning, uh, or something like the suite from Lincoln, which is staggeringly beautiful. Right. Uh, I mean, these suites are a great way to present film music in concert with a solid sense of structure and development. Your music is written primarily for a concert hall, of course, and serves a very different purpose. But yes. how important is for you to have
2: a solid specific structure to your pieces? I mean, it's it's extremely important and it's It's rather subjective, I have to say. It's a very subjective thing. Does something work well or does it not work well? And in my writing process, um, I mean, typically when I'm writing concert music, I am writing into Sibelius software and I have uh, a pretty elaborate playback um, setup with Vienna Ensemble Pro and a whole bunch of Vienna Symphonic Library sounds that are really quite wonderful virtual instruments so that I can in a sense audition for myself what it is that I'm writing and Mm -hmm. I can hear to my own you know subjective tastes is this passage working or is it not working and to your question about structure is then this overall structure working or is it not working and it's it's very hard to define but I will say that I I feel that I I can feel whether it's going to work or not work and sometimes I'll say, well, it works up to here, <laughs> uh, but it doesn't work after this point, or this, doesn't, this feels premature. It feels like we haven't heard enough with this particular theme. We're getting to a new idea too quickly. It's a pretty common problem actually, right? Is that uh, developing the material in a satisfactory way is, if we're not Beethoven, um, is, it can be very difficult to do. So I use this, this playback system and this software to just keep at it uh, until I feel that I have achieved a satisfying result. I will say that that's a luxury that contemporary composers have, that uh, composers who would only write um, you know, with just pencil and paper don't have that luxury. Now, again, John Williams doesn't need that. Um, uh, and certainly, you know, Beethoven and Brahms didn't need that. Um, but it's helpful, it's very helpful to hear. And so even though, of course, the, the result with a, a series of you know, sampled orchestral instruments And being done through something like Sibelius Even though that result is still a pale reflection Of what the real orchestra will sound like It's not bad, it's pretty useful And so it does help me in the writing process To determine am I done or am I not done And I don't feel that I'm done Until it it all feels very satisfying to me Mm -hmm. Um, And then of course within the parameters of the commission When one is composing concert music on commission Which is mostly what I do Then one is dealing with a particular parameter. So for example, balance of power was commissioned in the agreement to be about 15 minutes, um, but no one was going to be angry if I delivered an 18 and a half minute piece. Now, if I delivered a, a 60 minute piece, it would have been a problem, uh, <laughs> but that wasn't gonna happen. So, you know, so that also is a, is a factor in terms of just the time. I have a commission for a five minute piece. I have a commission for an eight minute piece. And those are different things structurally or I have a commission for a, a 17 minute piece. That's, that's a very different endeavor. And subjectively, eventually, slowly, bar by bar, you know, chunk by chunk, phrase by phrase, one can get there if one keeps at it.
1: But is it for you always a matter of, you know, adding one beat at a time, constructing the piece one bar at a time and then going on and and proceeding and, and developing, you know, as if you are discovering the piece while you are writing it, or do you have maybe an overall structure? in your mind, where you see, okay, this is where I want to go. So I have a sense of direction and a focus where that I can look at So, how it works for you.
2: Yes. It, it can be that it, it really, I would say there's no one formula. It varies from piece to piece. I will say that in general, I don't compose in order almost ever. So I'm mm. almo- almost always composing out of order. Often I will write an ending and I know that I've got an ending that is a goal to, to, to your question that, okay, here's my ending. Now, maybe that ending will change eventually, but often I'll write an ending before I have the material that leads up to the ending. Cause I know, ah, this is how it's gonna end. Uh, and I don't know how we're gonna get there yet. Um, I have a beginning, I have a middle, et cetera. and And because you asked this question, having just composed this Rhapsody uh, for piano and orchestra that took me a very, very, very long time. Oh, yes. Uh, A very long time. Tell more about that. (laughs) Um, This uh, really challenging commission um, from an American pianist based in New York named Jeffrey Beagle, who has commissioned quite a number of American composers to write piano and orchestra pieces for him, at at least 15 um, notable American composers. And he approached me, now quite a while ago early 2020 saying that he wanted a work for piano and orchestra that would celebrate the upcoming centennial of George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue again something that I (laughs) immediately I immediately said no no I can't do that are you crazy Um, you know it's just that's insane but he wanted in in a sense a companion work a work that could be performed alongside Gershwin Rhapsody in Blue which he's been performing I think since, since he was a teenager I'm sure he's performed it live You know, hundreds and hundreds of times, Uh, you know, so that's a terrifying prospect for a composer. This is one of the great uh, iconic works of American music uh, of a particular style, a particular type of genius from what then was the young Gershwin. So in any case, I, you know, I, I said, no, I can't do that. And again, as with Balance of Power, eventually I was persuaded that I would try it. In any case, I've, I've only just just finished the work within the last couple of weeks, um, but his title also was really quite daunting. He said, I want it to be called Rhapsody in Red, White, and Blue. <laughs> um, so, you know, talk about just setting oneself up for the comparison.
0: Um, That's actually quite a good title. I like that. Tough, it is that? a
2: good title. It is a good title, but it's yeah, a very, very yeah. daunting title. Um, so, yeah. I, I, you know, my music... Note, when I, when I t- you know mentioned the three big influences, so to speak, Copeland and Bernstein and Williams, I'm not saying Gershwin. I mean, I'm not a composer. I, I don't generally include any kind of jazz elements. That's even, even that phrase is such a, a complicated, you know, what, what do you mean when you say jazz elements? But let's for the, let's for the moment not, you know, not try to dissect that. Um, but I knew that I had to have some sort of homage to the Rhapsody in Blue. I had to have something evoking a style that is now about a century old. But uh, part of my real challenge was to decide, well, how much? How much of the piece should do that? And how convincingly can I do pastiche, as the, as the phrase goes? Um, how well or not well can I do pastiche? How much should I try to include that? So anyway, in the end, I wrote a 17-minute work for piano and orchestra in which one chunk, which I refer to as the bluesy scherzo, um, one chunk at least nods to the mid-1920s style, uh, and, and perhaps beyond, and to some of those piano styles in a way that I think audiences will understand, um, and certainly in a sense. way that, mm-hmm. that gives Jeffrey Beagle an opportunity to show off his virtuosity and his ability to play in different styles. But in the end, most of the piece, I believe, sounds like me, um, for whatever that means. <laughs> uh, and you know, I'm not really trying to sound like Gershwin. But I will say that, harmonically, um, you know, if we can get technical for a second, I I typically avoid straight ahead dominant seventh chords in my writing. Uh, I find that they they pull the listener into a, a kind of earlier time. So even though there's plenty of 5-1 in my music, there's plenty of dominant tonic. Um, I, I generally avoid straight dominant sevenths. And you can't nod to the 20s without having dominant sevenths. So um, so in fact, there's one se- in the bluesy scherzo section, um, there's hundreds of dominant sevenths. And it's like all the dominant sevens that I haven't used over the last 20 years are all in this <laughs> one section of the piece. So I had to, in a sense, I had to allow myself to say, yeah, this is OK. This harmonically, this is OK, even though this is, quote unquote, an old fashioned kind of harmonic yeah. thing. You can't you can't invoke that era without invoking, you know, without using that kind of harmony. So we, we will see um, if audiences feel that this piece is successful. And because Jeffrey Beagle is an extraordinary pianist, um, and also he's an extraordinary entrepreneur. He's been very, very actively getting this booked by many orchestras. And as we sit and speak here today, even though the piece has not yet been premiered, there are 37 orchestras that have signed on to play this work, um, which wow. is quite remarkable. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm excited and I'm also you know, daunted uh, to imagine what the reactions will be because he will play this alongside Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue in almost every case. So you'll, wow. have, you'll have Boyer and Gershwin back-to-back, whether it's, you know, my piece first, Gershwin second, or the reverse, you'll have that with all these orchestras. And there are some big orchestras and some small orchestras. Fantastic. And, yes, it's, it's a, such
1: an amazing, you know, challenge, I guess, yes. for, you, uh,
2: for what you just
1: described, but also for the fact that, you know, even the orchestration of the Rhapsody in Blue has a very specific history because it was orchestrated for, for a kind of an enlarged, Big band somehow. Paul White added yes, strings by Farde yes, Groffet, Yes, yes. Yeah, the the Paul Whiteman uh, orchestra, and then then there was the standard symphonic version that was orchestrated by Farde Grofé. So how how do you did you deal with that? Did, did you you know set up writing a piano and orchestra, uh, or did you add also some other yes, elements? A, a very good question, wise? and and
2: I I learned more about all of that um, in the course of this piece, just to sort of do my own research and try to understand more about the history of this piece and yes indeed I mean Rhapsody in Blue uh, is always was a collaboration because Gershwin didn't do the orchestration himself and that's another interesting story in and of itself of how remarkable to me it is that the young Gershwin proceeded from a situation in which he wrote the Rhapsody he didn't yet have Sufficient knowledge to do his own orchestrations. And within less than two years, you know, you get the concerto in F, which is an even greater piece, I've, in my view. And he does do his own orchestrations. And what a remarkable uh, evolution there was yeah. in such a short period of time. You know, a, tr- a true genius. And I had never really delved into that in any kind of detail before this particular commission. And even though I ended up, you know, largely doing my own thing, I felt like I needed to try to understand it. So to, to answer your question about orchestration, There's the original, sometimes called the jazz band orchestration of Rhapsody in Blue, the the Paul Whiteman version, and then there's the more standard large symphonic orchestration. There's even a third um, that I guess is very rarely performed, more of a a theater orchestration, um, all of which Groffet did. But um, in order to just have performability, um, I wrote for a a standard orchestra, and um, the kind of variable in it is um, Jeffrey Beagle wanted the piece to be performed by orchestras where there were only double wins available or triple okay. wins, the more, the more normal. So, um, you know, one thing that I needed to do was simply to make the so-called auxiliary wins optional. Um, so I think most orchestras will play it, will have standard triple wins. And, you know, the brass and perk and strings are just standard, um, but it can be performed with either double or triple wins. But I did not uh, create anything to try to replicate uh, the Paul Whiteman Orchestra because that's going to be a much more specialized sort of performance situation. So, um, but the reason I mentioned this Maurizio is that um, specifically you were asking about, you know, writing in, in or out of order, etc. And And there, there is a piece that was written utterly and totally out of order. <laughs> um, it was, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, just, it was, it was fragments. It started with fragments of let me sit here at the piano with my, you know, limited non Gershwin-esque piano skills and let me improvise some material that seems appropriate for this piece. And I I have to say, I mean, that 17 minutes was, it cost me dearly (laughs) to write that piece. I told Jeffrey that. I wrote over 1,200 bars of music, and in the end, the the piece is 463 bars long. So the ratio of what I threw out to what I kept is pretty pretty dramatic. Um, And I always throw out quite a lot of stuff, but I threw out a lot more (laughs) in this case because I was simply trying to figure it out. So the piece was written utterly out of order, and a lot of the things that I sketched originally what I did was uh, I actually said okay well let me let me put a lot of Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue into Sibelius let me actually play each note and enter the note uh, from the two piano score let me get my head around this and then have Sibelius play it back to me let me just sort of get used to it and then I also took a big chunk of the third movement of Concerto in F which I love the third movement is so fantastic and so I put hundreds of bars of Gershwin um, into Sibelius and and played it back at me and said, wow, I can't write this. <laughs> uh, I just can't do it. But so I started sketching some things. And in the end, I don't think much of anything that I initially sketched ended up in the piece, almost, almost nothing, um, except maybe the, the big, there's a big uh, lyrical tune that is clearly different from most of the rest of the piece because most of the piece is fast and energetic. The big lyrical tune, I think maybe that came pretty early on. But a lot of mm-hmm. the, the fast piano stuff that I was sketching it was cool but it just ended up being not sufficiently uh, good or malleable to to make a piece so it's very subjective um of how this process works it's extremely mm. subjective and i was right. fortunate that that i had a long time that i had a long time to work on this piece
1: mm. and that, that's pretty amazing i mean but how, how much for you is a, a way of learning you know keeping learning something yes. because mm. as you said you know you sketched a lot of material that wasn't used so did you do generally a lot of preparation work in that same lots of preparatory work in the sense let's try this or try that maybe it's not necessarily something that will end up in the finished piece so is that an important part of your way of doing things
2: yes and it and it will always depend on the specific commission and also how much time how much time i have in the case of that particular piece it was in a sense luxurious because i had a long timeline and Jeffrey was very patient uh, with me in, in in delivering it to him, and it was it was quite a long time between when he initially asked me and when it was going to be premiered, etc. So there was lots of time to experiment and just and just to learn. And yeah, each commission is different. Um, with Balance of Power, I spent so much time just doing research and reading and not doing any writing. Um, and in the case of Ellis Island, uh, you know, Ellis Island, I spent about a year creating that piece, and the, half of that was just doing research and was creating the script for the piece etc before I wrote any music so it's really all going to depend on the commission the specific circumstances and whether I feel like I need to do a lot of research in order to be prepared to write or not Um, and that that will all vary depending on the commission
1: Ellis Island. And that continues to be, as I was saying in the introduction, your most popular and uh, certainly the most frequently performed work of your
2: catalog. It is.
1: Uh, Why this piece continues to speak so strongly to the audience, according to you?
2: Well, thank you. It's it's very gratifying to me. And as you know, uh, just last year, the piece had its 20th anniversary. um, And so I made a little... uh, had, had produced a short video, a five minute video, uh, a kind of retrospective of the piece, of 20 years of the piece. And it made me uh, walk back down memory lane to, toward you know, having created the piece and, and some of the milestones along the way, and, and the PBS great performances production of the piece with Pacific Symphony and Carl St. Clair, the recording of the piece that I did with the Philharmonia in London and those actors, and and to try to um, you know, just put into perspective what it has meant to me to have a piece that has been performed so much that has become literally just about a daily part of my life. I mean, I've had other pieces that happily have been performed a lot, but nothing like Ellis Island. And because it's such a big piece, it's such a big endeavor, in a way, it's even more remarkable to me that so many orchestras have produced it. I mean, this is a 45-minute work for actors and orchestra and projected images. It's not a simple thing to put on. So for an orchestra Mm -hmm. to say, we're going to perform Ellis Island, The Dream of America. That's a pretty serious commitment in terms of both orchestral resources, but also we're going to collaborate with actors. We're going to have projections, etc. So to your question, the heart of the piece, the essence of the piece, are these stories that I chose from the Ellis Island Oral History Project. You know, I think the simple answer is they're wonderful stories. They're very true. They're poignant in many cases, in some cases humorous, um, but they're poignant, they're meaningful. You know, here in the United States, as in a way a nation of immigrants, as perhaps cliche has become, and as problematic as that has become in many ways, there's a truth to it that so many people in the United States can trace their origins to a family member who came through Ellis Island. I mean, there were 12 million immigrants who came through Ellis Island, uh, you know, between 1892 and 1954, 12 million people from whom you know generations have sprung, and such a big percentage of American people can trace their ancestry there, but even those who can't, I think there's a very relatable human story of people who overcame difficult circumstances and wanted to move somewhere that in which they could have a better life um, and so these stories they're very meaningful stories, um and I worked very hard in selecting them and editing them to make each of these stories um, be very impactful in a very short period of time. So I think if one simply just reads the script that I created from the Ellis Island oral history project, that is moving in and of itself. And then I tried very hard musically to bring the resources of what an orchestra can do so beautifully, so powerfully, and to try to combine that with these very powerful stories. And I think that the combination of the two you know, the saying, hopefully the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. I, hopefully that's what happened with the piece. And audiences seem to feel that way. And so it's, it's really remarkable. And honestly, it's now the piece is 21 years old, almost, and it's being performed more than ever. Um, and, and as we speak here in in uh, less than two months, the great Cleveland Orchestra will perform it in a series of educational concerts at Severance wow. Hall, which I'm very excited about. Um, and the cincinnati symphony and pops just announced that they will give three performances um, next season in april of 2024 and there are a number of others um, in the works that aren't announced yet so that's your answer and it's and it's very very gratifying to me
0: such a cinematic piece and I mean, this is you know there's so many parallels in that piece to, to film and, I mean was there a, a kind of pathway into orchestrating for composers thanks to that piece do you think or is that just purely coincidental
2: uh, it's a good question actually that piece preceded almost all of my orchestration work for composers interestingly so I think there's a there's a kind of common uh, a common source of that material and yes, it is indeed very cinematic. It, in a way, it's like a documentary film that unfolds in front of the audience. Um, but um, it might—it might, in fact, be in some way the, the sort of opposite sequence. In that, maybe some of the orchestration work that came along was because of uh, of the piece doing well. But I think um, it come—it comes from the same kind of source material. And yeah, indeed, I mean that piece was premiered in 2002. And most of the orchestration work that I've done for other composers started in around 2003. So it was actually a little before that.
0: Mm, so it was a, a, almost like a perfect segue.
2: <laughs> Indeed.
0: Earlier on, we talked about the London Symphony Orchestra and how incredible it sounds. And, uh, you know, it's it's an orchestra that reinvents itself, um, you know, for each generation. And it's it's just wonderful how that happens. And when we think of the orchestras and certainly influences you know i i can think of so many being introduced to so many recordings and music in general by the likes of lso recordings or whether it be perhaps the boston pops orchestra you know and there was wonderful john williams albums early 80s more so i suppose whenever we were introduced to the likes of uh, maybe william walton or he was performing with the boston Pops, some great aaron copeland and there was a great Bernstein by Boston album as well, and all, all of these are just so so much part of my my youth growing up because it introduced me to a whole new repertoire. And of course, I um, because John Williams was on the cover, I thought, oh right, okay, great, because <laughs> you know? I, I was obsessed, obviously, and, and and loved his music. So I naturally wanted to know uh, what more music was out there because, like you know, programming a wonderful concert with his own music include other composers music similar to those Boston Pops albums and because of your you you have looking on looking down on you in the best possible sense you've got (laughs) Aaron Copeland and Leonard Bernstein there just to give listeners a bit of a picture and these two composers alongside John Williams as you mentioned earlier are very much part of your musical fabric and we'd love to hear a little bit about maybe your first introductions to their music and and your feelings whenever you think about those two giants in the musical world.
2: Yes, absolutely, and and it's it's so important the these recordings that you mentioned with John Williams and the Boston Pops in the eighties and the early nineties. I think for all of us of a certain age, um, whether in America or in your case in the UK, that body mm-hmm. of recorded repertoire was absolutely key um and I know you know Maurizio was curious about uh, early connections with John Williams and at what point it made an impact and for me clearly uh you know obviously hearing Star Wars uh, at age seven I was too young to really understand the magnitude of what the music was doing to me I was a kid right um but I will say that as a teenager I can't you know I can't say precisely when I started to listen to these Boston Pops recordings that you mentioned um, but it had an enormous impact on me, especially as I was trying to then understand what it means to compose for orchestra. Um, and those recordings were, uh, you know, among my earliest CDs, um, uh, even though I had I had my recordings by rock bands, you know, like Journey um, uh, and Sticks. I I had my John Williams and the Boston Pops. And Don't still- stop believing. That's exactly exactly. <laughs> what, a, what a song. What a song. <laughs> um, that that recorded repertoire, as you say, is so is so important and has had, I think, such a mm. such a transformative effect on uh, a full subsequent generation of listeners that this this divide between the so-called you know classical and pop, etc., however you want to put it, uh, between cinematic, between avant-garde, that th- those kinds of boundaries began to soften with the work yes. that John Williams did um, with the Boston Pops. Um, but yes, yeah, so as you say, the, this lineage of these American composers, Copeland Bernstein, Williams, um, it's hard for me to define precisely when they became such an important part of my life, but I will say in the case of Bernstein, whom I have subsequently spent, well, all of them, um, but Bernstein, I've spent a lot of time thinking about and investigating his legacy as a composer, as a conductor, of course, as an educator, uh, as a world figure, a cultural figure. And I will say that for me, um, when I was a freshman in college at Rhode Island College, that uh, I discovered the score, the vocal score to Bernstein's Mass uh, on the shelves of the library at Rhode Island College, and I remember, you know, very well taking the score, putting it in my hands, putting it on the table, thumbing through it, listening then to the recording, which would have been on LP at that point, listening to Bernstein's recording of the Mass, looking at the score, and in a sense having my mind blown um, by what I was seeing. That that. I was too young at age 18 to grasp what it is that Bernstein was doing, but I, I knew enough to be curious and to be completely knocked out by this diversity of, of what I was seeing. I mean, from the the quadraphonic tape that, that he used at the beginning of that piece, which, of course, you couldn't hear in quadraphonic sound on a stereo album, but you got the idea, um, you know, to a simple song all of, you know, these kind of Bernsteinian elements, the mixed, the driving mixed meter, the, this kind of all-embracing, all-encompassing um, vision and the eclecticism behind it and all these musical styles and a great sense of theater, of drama, of totally drawing you in. Uh, I was completely knocked out and so I became a Bernstein Mass fan um, early on.
0: Blessed is the man
3: who loves the... Blessed is the man who praises him, lauda, lauda, laude, and walks in his way.
2: Copeland, you know, somewhere in the same vicinity. I heard and first looked at a score of, of Appalachian Spring and you know I have subsequently had an opportunity to conduct um, Appalachian Spring both in the orchestral suite and also the complete original version for 13 instruments on more than one occasion and the first time that started for me was you know in my later 20s something about this very fundamental aspect of what it means to be an American composer that writes for orchestra uh, or in the case of Bernstein's mass more than orchestra and then the influence of these Boston Pops recordings and John Williams and his film scores that you know, were then new uh, and the way in which he adapted them for the concert hall. And as we mentioned earlier, the suites uh, that he often recorded with the Boston Pops. All of these elements were part of what made me who I am as a composer. And all of this starting from you know, from my teenage years, late teenage years and through my 20s certainly. And it's all never stopped. I mean, it all is something that is a continuous learning process. But I think, you know, when we are young composers and trying to find our way and trying to learn how to do this thing and how to write for orchestra, all, mm-hmm. all of these things were, they had an incalculably large impact on me. And it's very difficult to say it was precisely this thing on precisely this day. It's, a, it's an accumulation. It's a gradual process. It's the things that we listen to and our minds... Uh, in whatever way they work somehow these elements all blend together and then you know as a composer when I sit down at a keyboard and I put my fingers on a keyboard and I'm going to start something ultimately all of this stuff is what informs the notes that come out and then the decisions and the judgments okay I like this I don't like this or this sounds too much like you know take your pick this sounds too much like JFK this sounds too much like far and away this sounds too much like uh, you know the Imperial March whatever it may be Um, or this sounds too much like Appalachian Spring or this sounds too much like West Side Story you know and so there is a a process of uh, flattery and imitation in which you know as young composers we try to write our own versions of the music that we love and eventually along the way if you just keep at it hopefully one gets better at doing something that belongs to one oneself and yet it is it is all of these things and in a way even though it sounds crazy to make the comparison if you think about beethoven and you think about let's say beethoven's first symphony the degree to which he was indebted to haydn and yet had his own voice his own personality was evident even in that first symphony but you can't imagine that symphony without. The Haydn symphonies that preceded it. Yes. So he loved that music. He knew that music, and yet he wanted to assert himself. And I feel, you know, ridiculous even mentioning Beethoven. Right? It's like what, what kind of, what kind of arrogant person am I to mention Beethoven? But I mention it only because <laughs> because you can hear it. You can hear the model. You can hear the relationship. You can hear the affection and love for this previous music. And then you can hear in Beethoven's case because he was an utter genius, um, which I am not, you can hear then his own voice and his own contribution being so present from such an early age. So it's that kind of thing, except now, unlike Beethoven's era, we live in an era in which we have all of these amazing recordings and we have videos and we have movies and we can watch the movies and listen to the soundtrack and all of you know, none of which was available in Beethoven's time. So our ability to relate to all of this material that exists, and to try to find our own way and and make a place for ourselves is greatly enhanced because we've got all of this material, uh, and it's you know it's utterly remarkable. So how often did I, as a as a teenager, listen to John Williams's recording of the Olympic fanfare and theme with the Boston <laughs> Pop? How much did we all did we all hear it, and how much did I yeah. want to write something like that so badly, and of course then. You know, you can't get too close, but you you obviously can write something that then, oh, ah, ah you like John Williams, don't you? One
0: of the biggest treats was in 1987. Do you remember the By Request album?
2: Yes. Yeah. Where you had the
0: Olympic fanfare theme, and theme. You had, you know, the Liberty fanfare, you know, and you had the Mission, the NBC News theme. And, the, you know, it was fantastic to have these pieces, uh, brand new pieces to, you know, to this uh, 12 year old's ears you know it was it was just such a such a thrill.
1: those years, John was incredibly prolific and started to write a lot of those ceremonial pieces and commissions where he explored this specific American type of sound, with lots of brass fanfares and a warm feeling of joy. It's kind of his own version of the Elgar pump and circumstance, <laughs> in my opinion. Yes. So how much, according to you, Peter, he was able to blend a very clear, direct language together with an astonishing sense of sophistication in the writing, because... Uh, I mean, these aren't just big tunes and big film fairs, but there is a staggering amount of craft at this play.
2: Absolutely, yes. And and indeed, craftsmanship, I mean, that's a very important word. You know better than uh, almost anyone, you know, the level of craftsmanship in the music that John Williams writes is, is always absolutely impeccable. And that is certainly something, you know, to which I have tried to aspire, is to, you know, not let a piece out the door with my name on it without, the best amount of craftsmanship uh, that I can bring to that particular endeavor. And even though it's, it's a much lower level of, you know, of ability and skill, to try to do it still to the, best, to the best of my ability.
1: Well, you certainly are capable of writing music that is both very accessible mm-hmm. and sophisticated at the same time. <laughs> I mean, the piece Silver from Fair, which you recorded in your previous album, yeah. uh, yes. is a great example of that. I mean, I love that piece, absolutely. <laughs> we may associate this type of sound with John Williams uh, but i mean it's so hard to write convincingly in this style and all your pieces are crafted with so much care and detail you know especially the way they are articulated you know it's not again it's not just like you no know, big tunes and show we show we fanfares you know it's and we should i mean we should more. mention
2: about you know just the the quality of the orchestration itself because there's the craftsmanship of Creating the music of what we might call purely the composition, but then there is the orchestration and of course, you know If one is composing for orchestra Then those two things are inseparable and yet they are to some extent different So so for example, I mean when I begin sketching something again, I sketch at the keyboard Uh, My process is, you know, writing into, as I said, Sibelius and having this great collection of um, Vienna Symphonic Library orchestral samples play back at me, although it could be any number of samples, Spitfire samples or any any number of of good orchestral samples. But the point is that I don't actually begin generally by playing the orchestral sounds themselves, but purely the piano, um, which I think, you know, is a relationship to the way that John Williams worked, actually composing the music. And getting the proper notes just hearing the piano whether one is sitting Mm. at the acoustic piano and doing it with pencil on paper or playing you know a a, a great sampled piano and and having uh, software play back to you the sample piano sound but I I start with the piano itself and try to get that sense of the composition of the balance between the registers etc just at the piano and then once the music has reached a certain point of completion it might only be a fragment that's completed but it's a fragment that i feel sufficiently good about then i then i start to orchestrate it so the level of just sheer orchestration brilliance in john williams's music of course is is quite quite extraordinary and i think one can place him just in that sense alongside ravel alongside britain alongside prokofiev uh, alongside the greatest orchestrators That is that is a somewhat separate uh, aspect of of being a composer. So the, you know, Maurizio, I'm very appreciative of the things you say about, for example, silver fanfare. Um, You know, there is a degree of just trying to craft that purely as a composition and then trying to craft it as an orchestral composition. How can I best orchestrate this? And of course, those decisions, they do affect the musical ones, because, for example, if one wants to compose a fanfare for trumpets, then it, it's gotta be in a certain register on the piano. If it's too high, um, it's not gonna work because you're gonna be out of range or it's gonna be very uncomfortable. And if it's too low, it's not gonna have the brilliance. So it has to be here in a certain range you know, on the keyboard. And then thinking about the whole brass section, trumpets, horns, trombones, tuba, percussion, how does one voice these chords in such a way that it really utilizes the capabilities of these instruments. How
1: how they blend together. Indeed. I mean, how how you couple instruments with, together with the other. You know how a French horn sounds together with a trumpet or with other instruments. How it's. I mean, I guess composing and writing an orchestrating, There's such an amount of decision that a composer <laughs> yes. has to make, yes.
2: which is can be really daunting. At, <laughs> at it, some it can point. be. It can be. But you know. So getting back uh, to what we talked about with the. The John Williams signature series and you know almost sounds like I'm doing a commercial for Hal Leonard but I'm not Um, but you know the um, although I must say I I did get the opportunity a few years ago to actually visit Hal Leonard and Paul Lavender who's the the chief editor of of those and to actually see some of the things that were in process in the pipeline and and to talk a little bit about the the logistics of getting that out into the world which I I found very very interesting Um, but yeah the availability of that music to study in the same way that we would study Prokofiev or that we would study yes. Britain, or again, Copeland or, or Bernstein or Ravel, how precisely did a composer put these notes on the page so that the result in the end is precisely what we hear. And that process of study, of just studying scores while listening to recordings over and over and over again, it's invaluable it's incalculably important Mm -hmm. and so the 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 availability of this material is is so important and so even to be very specific about like the olympic fanfare and theme um you know toward the latter part of that piece the strings the violins are playing like mad right they're playing these really fast figures that are very difficult to execute and it just sounds like Mm -hmm. this wonderful um this wonderful kind of bubbling effect If you didn't have a score, I think it'd be extremely hard to hear, you know, what these pitches are that are moving so fast. But then when you look, you say, ah, okay, this is precisely what's happening. And now, of course, we we are so fortunate to be able to watch videos where we can see the L.A. Phil or the Vienna Philharmonic or the Berlin Philharmonic and we've got some camera shots that look at this and then you can have the score in front of you and go, ah, okay, I, I get it. Now uh, I get it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I get it. Now that, you know, Beethoven didn't have that. Ravel didn't have that. Um, but it's, it's a, and of course, it's not just John. Well, you can do that with concerts of Prokofiev or with concerts sure. of Britain or concerts of Ravel. But, you know, we are talking about John Williams here. And so these resources, the availability of these resources, in, in a way, it's overwhelming because i could imagine just spending a couple of years of my life not writing and just looking and learning and and have this process of osmosis continue yes. and i've reached a certain point where i'm very fortunate that i have a, a steady stream of commissions and i actually feel like i'm going to have a hard time keeping up with all of this so that means there's less <laughs> there's less time to study um there's to less study. but yes. but studying is it's it's so important and i think i think that goes for all fields but certainly in music uh having a curiosity that simply never is exhausted, I think is a key, is a really key thing yes. to always be curious, always wanting to, to learn. Um, and you know, since we're talking here about John Williams, here's a 91 year old person who's in an utter league of his own, who is not yet exhausted, who is not yet done. And so that means you know, there are new things, there are brand new things that are available. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, you know, like uh, the series of gifts continues.
1: of the things I am enjoying a lot by talking with composers, who are from our same generation, uh, is to get their perception about how much the concert hall landscape has changed and nowadays offers some more opportunities to write in a certain style, usually associated with film music, tonal, lyrical, sometimes unabashedly romantic music. Um, I recently finished reading the book written by Jamachari called The War on Music, where he analyzes the historical context that caused a lot of the music written in the first half of the 20th century to become marginalized or canceled, as we would say today, and specifically a lot of the music written by the émigré composers who flew to the United States from Europe because of the totalitarian regimes, and got to Hollywood to write for film music, and then becoming the founding fathers of the so-called Hollywood sound. Yes. And the irony is that that music is what kept a link with the past alive and made possible for the advent of figures like John Williams. And this leads directly to a composer like you today. We know that this has been seen with a lot of contempt by the avant-garde and the academia back 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. So my question for you, Peter, is this... Um, did you ever face issues or obstacles in your career as a classical composer to write in a style that for many years was seen as
2: forbidden almost? Yes, Maurizio, this is a, an enormous question or a series of questions. Um, and <laughs> so, um, and I do want to come back to, to John Mauceri's book, The War on Music, um, but let me first of all answer in, in a brief way, and maybe these, these two answers will connect with one another. Indeed, I think if one wants to describe what one might call a quote-unquote cinematically influenced concert music, which is a phrase that has been used to describe my music repeatedly, I mm. think that, that that is indeed, that's a genre or a style or a series of styles that is readily accepted and understood by audiences and by orchestras who program music in a way that is uh, considerably different from what it would have been a generation ago. And mm-hmm. I so I uh, will back up and say that I did my graduate studies um, in the early 1990s. And I studied at the, at the Hart School, uh, then called Hart School of Music, the Hart School uh, now. And I studied with composers who were fairly young at the time. So when I was in my mid-20s, the composers with whom I was studying were in their late 30s uh, or early 40s. They are pretty young. And I felt as if, based on all the things that I was learning um, in, this, in the crucible of graduate school when one is learning so much repertoire, I felt as though at, at the age that I was at that point and at that point in time in the early 1990s that I was really the, the first generation in a while that was free to write the music that I wanted to write. Without Mm. having a prescribed kind of style In which I had to write I've only I think come to understand this more In more recent years But if one was a composer studying in a university environment In the 1960s Or the earlier 1970s And maybe even in some cases up through the 1980s Depending on the school at which one studied I think one was not free To simply write unabashedly tonal music And whenever we use terms like tonal music or atonal music, we're always having to generalize to a certain extent because these are very loaded terms and they, you can't simply define them. You can't just say tonal music. I mean, that's a big series of terms and one can teach whole courses where one deals with these issues. But just to generalize, you know, to answer your question, I felt free. I didn't feel when I was in graduate school that my teachers were telling me how I had to compose or forcing me to write, you know, you had to write 12-tone music. Um, (laughs) I did have, uh, as an undergrad at Rhode Island College, I took a a graduate course while I was still an undergrad, and I was taught by a a guest instructor who uh, clearly had more modernist um, leanings. Again, a loaded term, modernism. But I remember writing something uh, there, and, uh, you know, it was basically an A minor, and being told here, write something with set theory instead. Um, And so, and I did. Um, But I, I remember that, you know, that as a kind of, an isolated example, and it was not what I had to do in graduate school. So I feel very fortunate that this was not prescribed to me, but for quite a period of time, it really was. And with John mao The War on Music, uh, you know, I'm so glad you mentioned this because I think this is one of the most fascinating and eye-opening books that I've ever read. And I'm already on my, my second reading of this book, and there's so much information in there. And John Maucherry, with whom I've had the the great pleasure to speak both in person and over Zoom um, on a number of occasions. He is such an absolute knowledge, uh, such a wealth of knowledge of music, and his perspective is so so distinctive. And so as a kind of cultural history, I think the war on music illuminates this to a large extent and really makes a very important point about continuity, about stylistic continuity, that these composers who were, as you say, the emigrate composers from Europe, Who came to Los Angeles um, starting in the 1930s and who helped to define the vocabulary of what became quote-unquote Hollywood film music. These were uh, by and large highly trained highly musically literate composers who represented a tradition that continued to flower in films and yet then it, it languished in many ways in what might say, uh, what might say is a sort of mainstream concert music or the music that was really written about uh, in the press and in you know, academic press, et cetera, starting in the post-World War II years. So it's very, very interesting, isn't it, to think about what was happening, let's say with Schoenberg and his disciples, you know, with, with Berg and his late works and Webern uh, and this sort of cult that grew up around Webern and, and all of the influence of that. And you think that that was simultaneously happening while composers like corngold and steiner and Rocha were writing the sorts of scores that they were writing in hollywood and that all flowed into in my view the bloodstream of, of john williams of the, of the subject of you know of your podcast that the language of john williams employed obviously in star wars and other scores could not have been what it what it was were it not for Corngold, most specifically and others um, and of course you know John Williams in his earliest days in Hollywood as a pianist was playing for some of these people and being befriended by Alfred Newman and Bernard Herrmann etc so there's this incredible continuity that was not evident in the hardcore avant-garde and it, John Marcheri is so brilliant in the way he discusses this and dissects this and it's extremely interesting and so i as a composer getting back to your question i never was it was not prescribed to me that i had to write so-called avant-garde music um and in a piece like my very early Titanic from 1995, you know, which I always hasten to point out was two years before James Cameron's movie. And I had (laughs) had no idea that the movie was was being written. Kind of overshadowed you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, in a very large way. But, you know, so I wrote this piece at age 25 called Titanic, and it's on my my first recording with the LSO. And I was studying for this period um, with John Corleano for a short time. So it's very Corleano influenced, but it's also influenced by, you know, Ives, etc. So that piece i was at a very young age trying to to do my own thing with some of this more avant-garde if you will or more modernist music and certainly obviously it's very Corleano influence but i was trying to make sense of it all um, in a way that if i were to approach that subject matter now would be would be very different um, so i personally was trying to see in what way i could incorporate certain modernist techniques Um, into this into this music as a a young composer but interestingly you know then I I went in a, a pretty different direction fairly soon after and because of the fact that Ellis Island which I wrote you know 2001 2002 so I was 31 32 years old when I wrote that piece because that piece achieved such a degree of prominence at a pretty early age that helped define a direction for my career that I could not really have anticipated. But because of the success of Ellis Island, I was asked to do a number of things. And so, for example, the Kennedy Brothers piece and getting back to the Boston Pops and to that connection, I was specifically asked by Keith Lockhart, of course, who's John Williams's successor in that very same job at the Boston Pops. I was specifically asked to write The Dream Lives On, A Portrait of the Kennedy Brothers because of Ellis Island, The Dream of America which is a piece that was completely what I wanted to write, even though I got a commission for that piece from the Bushnell Center for the Performing Arts. That was a completely self-generated piece. I wanted to write that piece. I had this idea and ultimately I was able to do it. So that led to so many other things and therefore I was allowed to do these things. Um, Could that have happened without John Williams and without the Boston Pops and without his role there and without all the success of his film music, which relates back to Korngold, which relates back to Strauss and Wagner and Puccini? No, of course not. So so reading John Moucheri's book, The War on Music, I just felt, again, like my my mind was being expanded with the arguments that he makes and with these points and about this great continuity of style, of tradition and he really explains uh, in a way that helps i think make sense for a lot of us why this great dichotomy arose and some of the forces that sustained what we might call the avant-garde and the modernist movement and some of the points that my makes in this book are just so interesting i mean how because the Soviet Union was being so restrictive of what composers could and could not write. And he and he talks a lot about how confusing that was. Composers had to figure out what did it mean, what kind of music was OK, what was formalist and what was not formalist. But so because that was happening and because then America, uh, after the Second World War, was trying to position itself opposite this, then the United States ended up supporting the avant-garde in so many ways. I had never really thought about that um, in that fashion. So, you know, anyway, that's, again, a very long answer to your question, but all of these strands are so interesting and important. And yes, so many composers, I think, um, of my generation in America who have achieved a certain degree of, of prominence today, whose music is regularly commissioned and broadcast and performed and recorded, People like myself and Kevin Putz and Jennifer Higdon and others, I think are all of a generation that we have felt free to write the music that we wanted to write. And because, hey, we grew up listening to Star Wars, you know, <laughs> and we grew up listening to The Empire Strikes Back and, you know, to Superman. We have all of this somehow in our, in our cultural DNA. And yes. that has led us to the place that we are. And of course, you know, the avant-garde is, is very much alive and well and is manifest in different ways, and here in Los Angeles, I mean, we have, for example, the Green Umbrella series um, that the L.A. Phil presents, which has a, quite a sizable audience, and in which, you know, all kinds of interesting, what you might say, non-mainstream music is, is being yes. written. Um, this can coexist with a music yes. that is more, quote-unquote, populist, yes. To that mm-hmm. point, specifically at Disney Hall, and specifically John Williams, and and the Coexistence of these things so just uh, this last fall, when the LA Phil had its gala and once again celebrated John Williams, not the first time they've celebrated him. but you know on the same concert, you had Zofi Mutter performing his second violin concerto with John Williams himself conducting, and you know a major effort of I mean I guess he was what about 80 89 when he wrote that piece, you know a really major effort, a really significant work for the concert hall that is in terms of its vocabulary, in terms of its style, I think it's fair to say it's quite different from his most well-known film music, but still an absolutely compelling, fascinating piece. And I had a great seat for this, and I, w- so I watched John Williams conduct this with Anna Mutter playing. And then, you know, on the same program, you have Gustavo Dudamel conducting, you know, the flying theme from E.T. And I, and I, I must say from my seat, I was able to see John Williams sitting in the audience And when Gustavo Dudamel is, you know, reaching the great climax um, from E.T. and the orchestra is just wailing and it's fantastic, looking over and seeing this huge grin uh, on the face of John Williams. And I thought, (laughs) "What what a truly fantastic moment, right? But those things are coexisting in the same place and time and, in fact, in the same concert. And they have come from the pen of the same person and from the same mind. So that is something that I think is a highly positive development that I can say I think with confidence that yeah 35 or 40 years ago no way there's no way that would have happened
1: I agree I agree and and I think you summed it up so well Peter and and speaking of John Williams when we talked four years ago for our first interview uh you sent me some really lovely pictures of you with John Yeah. so tell us about (laughs) about your experience of meeting (laughs) with with the maestro I
2: uh yes I have been fortunate to yes meet with him interact with him on I guess, a half a dozen occasions over the years. Um, And I will say, although there's no photo of it, the the first time that I met him in person was uh, shortly before I moved to Los Angeles. I I did my graduate work before I went to USC at the Hart School at Hartford, uh, University of Hartford, the Boston Pops Esplanade Orchestra. They were doing a tour with John Williams conducting, and they came to the Bushnell Center for the Performing Arts, which is the major performing arts center in Hartford, which actually later would commission my Ellis Island. Um, But I was simply there as a a, uh, member of the audience and a fan in a kind of bold move. I really wanted to meet John Williams. And so uh, (laughs) I simply hung around um, until the very end, until everybody had left and, uh, you know, talked to like the one security person. And I don't remember what I said, but I think I made up some sort of a story so that I could, you know, get backstage. And anyway, I I, I pulled it off and I got introduced to him for the first time. Um, So I must have been 24 or 25 and uh maybe he was just turning 25 and i i felt you know <laughs> extremely daunted by this moment but um i knew that I, I knew that it had been accepted um to usc and to come out to do the film television scoring program and the person that had accepted me was the late buddy baker who ran that program and so i i mentioned this to john williams this is my first meeting with him and when i mentioned buddy baker his you know his eyes lit up and and then he spoke very kindly of, of Buddy Baker, and we talked about this for a moment. And of course, I, you know, I, I told him, I don't remember precisely what I said, but of how important his music was to me as a young composer. But he said, you know, Buddy Baker is wonderful, how great that you're going to work with him. And please tell him I said hello, et cetera. So that, that was my first you know meeting with him. And over the years, yes, we've, we've met a number of times backstage at the Hollywood Bowl, backstage at Disney Hall. The photos that you've seen are from that particular moment. and. Uh, one time just meeting him backstage at the Hollywood Bowl I think it would have been 2006 so my son was uh, pretty young was about nine or ten years old and of course was you know beginning to become a huge fan of Star Wars and of John Williams etc and I don't remember how I finagled that but um, we got this opportunity to talk to him backstage at the Hollywood Bowl and to do this picture and I just you know remember my son's uh, complete astonishment like you know this is daddy this is the guy who wrote star wars it was a really great moment um and and uh at one point um when pacific symphony had commissioned a big piece for me on music's wings um carl st Clair uh was the music director was not is and had commissioned this for the 25th anniversary of pacific symphony john williams was appearing with them as he's done a number of times and carl was kind enough to actually arrange for me to sit down and, and speak with john williams for I don't know, maybe it was 15 minutes or something like that, and to uh, make a kind introduction and say, you know, this is a a young up-and-coming composer or whatever he said, and we're going to do this big piece of his, and to have a chance to speak with him then and and on a few other occasions. So, as you know, you know, one of the things that's so striking is for a man who has achieved the highest of heights uh, as a composer and as a cultural figure to be as completely modest and... uh, Gregarious and generous of spirit as he is, I think that's a great lesson um, because I think if one achieves a certain degree of success, it's very tempting to become, uh, as the saying goes, too big for one's britches. You know, to become, um, uh, to have a big head, and if one can be at the absolute top of uh, the the field and to be revered in the way he is, and to be as modest as he is, then I think. There's a great lesson in that for all of us who try to climb this ladder of how important it is to remember that it's not about us, it's about the music, it's about what we create and the connections that we make to other people. Um, There's a lot to be learned from that.
1: That's wonderful, wonderful summation.
0: your pieces i always go back to is absolutely the celebration overture
3: i oh. absolutely love that
0: it's always a very difficult question but there must be a piece you often go back to <laughs> of another composers you know that you you know if you need a bit of a boost maybe you just state that on your ipod or whatever
2: oh god that yeah there there are indeed so many i i will say that um you know very relevant to your podcast and to these questions that Long ago, uh, I made a John Williams, you know, fanfare playlist, <laughs> and so all all of those pieces um, are ones that yeah, when I when I feel like I need a boost um, uh, and just a sort of a jolt of adrenaline and vigor, yes, indeed, the you know the um, Olympic fanfare theme and Liberty fanfare and and his other Olympic works as well. Um, all of that celebratory stuff is on that particular playlist, so that's one. You know, that's one kind of thing. I often go to um, the Prokofiev Classical Symphony. Um, there are numerous great recordings mm. of that. It's just an absolutely wonderful piece that I go to very often. In terms of you know Copland and Bernstein, of course, Appalachian Spring and Copland's Third Symphony, I go to a lot. Um, those are those are bigger pieces, uh, and I do and I do go to Mahler fairly often as well. Um, but that. Requires a bigger uh, chunk of time. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. uh, you know, I mean, you can't beat a long walk. A long walk. You can't <laughs> beat Mahler First Symphony in many ways. Um, so, yeah, I have to have some more time, you know, more time for Mahler. And then there are also, uh, you know, we haven't talked about it, but there are pop music um, artists that I go to very often as well. I mean, that's still part of my background. And so Mm -hmm. I do have my Billy Joel playlist that I go to often and my journey playlist that I go to often. So those are just different um, kind of moods. But I'm happy to know that you go to Celebration Overture because that's really the earliest piece of mine that's still in, you know, in circulation. That's the first kind of post student piece. and that was one of my, my first two commissions that I ever had. And I was, I was 27 years old when I wrote Celebration Overture. So I'm so glad to know that you go to it. And of course, I recorded it twice, um, recorded it with the LSO on my first recording. And then I made yes. some relatively minor changes, but you can hear them um, uh, after the, um, or should I say for the first performance by the Dallas Symphony, which was in 2001. That was the first time a major American orchestra had played my music. 2001 or two, and so I revised it a bit and, and improved it, and then that's the version that I recorded with the LPO um, on my on my last album. So I'm so glad to know that that very early piece of mine is a go-to piece for you.
0: Oh, absolutely, it is, and uh, I I even remember the album cover of that early. Uh, you look like uh, Tom Selleck, Magnum P.I. kind of uh, pose, you know, I like uh, <laughs> uh, that, it's kind of uh, that, that's what I remember specifically about that, because I remember seeing it in Virgin Megastore and uh, it, even just the titles of the pieces. I thought, right, this is going to sound good.
3: You know? oh, well, uh,
0: anyway, it was one of those blind buys, you know, not just because Titanic was on the album as well, but also, you know, you Celebration Overture, obviously just. And obviously the the orchestra, the LSO. I thought, oh, this is going to have to be good. It's going to be good. And of course, it didn't. It didn't disappoint. was your, Maurizio, what's your go-to Peter
1: Boye piece? <laughs> uh, it's a challenge between Silver from Fair and the Curtain Razor piece that they ah. released
2: in their
0: last album. Okay. Yeah, that's another fantastic
1: one. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah.
2: yeah, older and newer. And Curtain Razor, again, is an example of uh, an unexpected pathway because it was the first concert band piece, and then I had the opportunity to, you know, do this new orchestral version, and that has had so many broadcasts and streams, but as yet... The orchestral version remains unperformed because I just did it for the album. So it was only released, you know, um, seven or eight months ago. So it'll be interesting to see where that ends up. But Silver Fanfare, I'm so glad that you say that because that piece, although Ellis Island is my most performed work for sure, Silver Fanfare is the work that has been played by the most major orchestras. Um, and I can thank one person for a lot of that, which is Thomas Wilkins. Uh, the principal conductor of the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra, because Thomas Wilkins has done that piece with the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra three times to open their season um, with the Boston Symphony, with the Philadelphia Orchestra, with the Cleveland Orchestra. Uh, I just did it with the Virginia Symphony. Quite a quite a wonderful list. So thank you, Thomas Wilkins. Uh, yeah.
1: And before before signing off, um, what can you tell us about your upcoming work? I mean, you were hinting about something very big coming up. There's something that you can tell us to tell to our listeners what's coming up from Peter Boyer.
2: <laughs> yeah, So there are there are a, a number of commissions uh, in succession ahead. And while I can't talk about uh, all of them yet, I will say that one thing which is very exciting and is very new is that I am being commissioned to compose a piece in celebration of the coronation of King Charles. And this is not uh, an official coronation commission. Um, not Those have already been announced, not something that will be performed at the coronation itself on May 6th, but for a special concert um, by the Aura Singers, O-R-A Singers, a really wonderful group of uh, singers of some of the finest choral singers in London, which are led by Susie Digby, a really remarkable conductor who's done so much uh, in the field of choral music. And there will be a concert in London not yet announced but to be announced fairly soon shortly before the coronation that will celebrate uh, over 400 years of royal music and I have been asked to write um, a piece that will be performed by them with um, some brass and percussion accompaniment with the choir to close mm-hmm. that program and to celebrate this occasion so this was a very unexpected offer and something that has to be written quite quickly because <laughs> uh, it's co- coming up pretty soon as well, we speak here uh, so uh that yes, that's it's may, it's may yes. yeah so this this will occupy me over the next um, five weeks or so um, but i'm very excited about that and about the fact that it'll be a, a london commission and a choral commission which is not my usual fare. i have written choral music And in fact, when I was first starting uh, as a composer back in high school, I was in choirs and, you know, wrote some choral music and so loved choir, but I moved in an orchestral direction fairly early on. So this will have uh, brass and percussion in addition to the choir. You know, we have to have some of that in order to do this kind of fanfare element. So I'm very excited about that and stay tuned for specific details, which um, will perhaps by the time your podcast is done actually have been released. And then um, I have another commission for a, a co-commission of three orchestras uh, which are the tucson symphony in arizona and the sarasota orchestra and the brevard symphony orchestra in florida and this is a very interesting commission um eight minute work to be titled horizons and this will be premiered uh, in may 2024 with the tucson symphony jose luis gomez conducting and this is a piece um that will celebrate the career of a woman named uh, Patricia Pat Jocelyn, who has worked for these three orchestras over her career. was a very nice gesture for her. When I was approached by her, they uh, gave her an opportunity to choose her composer. And she said, if I could choose any composer, I would choose you. Would you do this? And I said, well, Well, of course I will. I'm very very honored (laughs) by that. Um, And what's particularly nice about that is the soloist on the concert in Tucson, on which it will be premiered, will be Yo-Yo Ma. So um, Yo-Yo Ma will not be performing my piece, but uh, my piece will open the program and Yo-Yo Ma will come right after that playing Sanson's wow. um, cello concerto number one. So I've never had a chance to meet him and it will be a wonderful thing to, um, to meet him as well. Uh, and, <clears throat> and of course, the, as I've said, the, the Rhapsody project um, for Jeffrey Beagle is now done and that um, will be premiered by the Utah Symphony and that specific date um, will be announced soon as well. And a bunch of other orchestras will play that and then there are some other not yet speakable <laughs> uh, commissions after that including a, including a very big one i could i could tell you about that off the record but we can't say it on okay. the air yet so um <laughs> do, do yes. want...
0: okay no well look that, that's terrific you must have a uh, fantastic time management skills because you've got uh three years worth of commissions and i'm thinking well, I mean, how do you prioritize that it's <laughs> fair play to you well, yeah then, so the. The ones that have to
2: be done first, those get written first, and the ones that have to be done next get written next. (laughs)
1: Peter, it was really a wonderful conversation. I mean, we, we opened up so many different, you know, subjects today, but, and it would be interesting to, you know, to explore further, but, you know, let's stop here for today. You will be always welcome to come back thank you. Uh, to discuss more your music, your, more, your newer projects. Uh, we'll be always very happy to have you here, and, and thank you so much for, for the time you, you spent with us.
2: It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Maurizio and Tim. And I will say, I think that the podcast that you do, which I need to catch up on when my schedule is a little bit less busy, uh, I think that they do really a great service to those of us who are so interested in this subject matter. And congratulations on having landed so many very cool people for the podcast. Um, It's a a really, really important series. And I feel uh, very honored to be asked to be part of it. So thank you again.
1: Thank, Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you. Thank you so much to you too, Tim. And speak soon for more podcast conversations.
0: Absolutely. Yes, definitely. All the best.
1: Thank you, everyone who listened. Go to thelegacyofjohnwilliams.com and stay tuned for more exciting stuff on The Legacy of John Williams.